so glad he was willing to drink this bitter cup. Although he prayed, Father, let it pass from me. And I'm so glad didn't call heaven's angels. From these hands pulled the nails that torment me. Well, you guys had that. Sorry about that. It's, I like control of the mic myself. These guys probably catch me when I'm talking to somebody in private, recording my, uh, no, I'm teasing, they don't do that. But anyway, so nonetheless, take your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 60 tonight. Isaiah chapter 60, we're going to look at three verses, the first three verses of the chapter, and we'll go from there. Again, I'm glad you're here tonight, and as was mentioned already, it's it just seems the last few weeks we have been getting really pummeled with illness and sickness. And uh, it's just crazy, this flu and some of the offshoots of it all. But that's Ohio weather, that's Ohio sickness. I mean, that's just the way it goes, right? So take your vitamins, work out hard, and stay in shape, and um, you'll get sick anyway. All right, so Isaiah chapter 60. Beginning in verse 1, let's go ahead and begin reading there. We could take the time to read back a little further, but I think we can get the gist of what's going on here, and then we're going to make an application tonight, all right? So it says, Arise, shine, 
For thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Well, the passage here in the book of Isaiah is prophetical. And it's directly relating to Israel during the millennium. And this is a time, of course, uh, that it, it goes well beyond where we're at now. We, we know that we're going to have the uh, rapture of the church and there's going to be a seven-year tribulation and the, the Lord's going to return and there'll be that big battle of Armageddon and then the millennium's going to kick off. And that's where the passage is set. That's the context of this passage and the prophetical context of it. Now, the Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ will have come at that point and he's going to have established his kingdom and he'll be ruling and reigning on the throne of David. And of course, that was a long way today and it's still a long way today in one sense. Of course, we know that the children of Israel, when Christ came at his first advent, they, they assumed that he would uh, come and establish his kingdom at that point. However, uh, we note that in a number of places that Israel rejected the Messiah and fortunately for us, in a sense, they did. And here we are in a wonderful position as Gentiles, hearing and receiving the gospel. However, they anticipated him and expected him to rule and reign at that point in history. However, we're going to see here that although in Isaiah it was foretold, it wouldn't be till the millennium that it's actually going to be fulfilled. Now, the Israelite, will one day experience this prophecy firsthand. And Christ is the light that's being referred to. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. I mean, Christ is the light that will come. It'll be his glory that will revive a fallen people, that will restore them to their promised place of preeminence in the world. Every eye will be on Israel at that point, and they will once again be elevated before all the nations of the world. God is not done with Israel yet. He still has work uh, to be done in their nation. And um, why is it that the light will be seen there? Why is it that uh, they'll be elevated? Well, I believe it's just because they will reflect the light of the Lord. And the light that they're reflecting will stand out amidst the darkness, as we note here in the passage. A darkness that prevails in the world. A darkness that, well, a gross darkness, it says, even of the people. And so when light shines in darkness, it's easy to see. And we're going to see that, once again, Israel is going to have the light of Christ there. Now, although the passage is written to God's people, Israel, and speaks to a day that's yet future, the fact is, is that I believe we can apply this principle, apply this passage practically to you and I as God's children, those that have experienced the new birth. And so I want to take a few moments and I want to look at these verses and I want to make a couple of statements and I want to note how it applies to us. Make that spiritual application, if you will, to this passage. And uh, I think it'll be a help and encouragement to us tonight. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. And we do ask, Lord, you'd lead us, you'd guide us, you'd help us. We're excited, Lord, about what you have in store for us. Now, Father, speak to us through your word. You're so worthy of our praise. We need you tonight. 
Father, we need that shot in the arm. We need you to come alongside us now and truly remind us again why we do what we do. And Father, be real to us even now tonight. Spirit of God, speak to my heart. Allow me to be your mouthpiece and be with every listening ear. And may they hear your word tonight. We love you. We need you. We'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just so you know, uh, probably in a, 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 week, a couple of weeks, we'll begin a new series, okay, about uh, successful Christian living, something along that lines. And so we'll start that. But uh, tonight, we just want to look at this thought tonight, right out of the book of Isaiah. And uh, the first thing I want you to see from the passage is the command to shine. Right off the bat, he says, arise, shine. Arise, shine. Well, the child of God is one that has come face to face with the light of the world. Now, if you're really a child of God tonight, you had to come face to face with none other than Jesus Christ himself. I mean, in John chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Right off the bat, we see here in the passage, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And I'm going to say this, if you've come to Christ, if you are truly a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus, then you indeed have come face-to-face with the light himself. You've had to have an encounter with the light. And not only do we come face-to-face with the light, but we are to reflect his light on behalf of others. The Bible teaches that you and I ultimately are indwelt by Jesus Christ, so we have him living in us, which means we have his light. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, ye are the light of the world. I mean, Jesus Christ, he ascended back to the heavenly father, but we're still on earth today. So guess what? We're the light that needs to shine. And the Bible goes on to say in that passage, not only are we the light of the world, we're a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we're expected to arise and shine. The Israelite was expected to do so, and in the future one day they will indeed arise and shine, and they'll be the light of the nations, if you will. The fact is today is that you and I are still the light of the nations because we have come face to face with the light, Jesus Christ, and now he lives in us, and we're to reflect his light before a world that's in darkness. We're to be visible. We sing the little chorus, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We sing another little chorus that says, Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Rise and shine. I mean, we sing courses and we sing little songs and we teach our children that as believers, we're to rise and shine. We're to reflect the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be visible in our testimony of him and his light. See, God is not impressed with undercover Christians. He's not impressed with that. You know, sadly enough, our church culture today is plagued with what's called seeker-sensitive churches. Now, their emphasis is on creating a non-threatening environment that would appeal to those seeking the Lord, which we get that. We kind of understand the mentality, that at least from, the, from, the, from the, 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 the fleshly mentality of all that. I mean, try to gain a crowd, try to get people to come, and then you can kind of 
give them the gospel. However, that, that's not necessarily how it really works. See, in order to accomplish this goal, they try to make the church look more attractive to unbelievers. But in doing so, it means that they incorporate familiar music or performances or maybe even kind of the present pop psychology of today. And they use those means by which the world uses to draw crowds the same. And sadly, they would actually resent somebody in many cases that would, would, would refer to them as being churchy. You seem like you're a churchgoer. You seem like one of those people that like serves the Lord, like, like, like religious. Well, that's not what we're looking for today in most churches. We don't want people to know that feel like we're churchy because we don't want to distance ourselves from them. And the only problem with that is, is that means that we have to be like them then, or at least appear to be like them. And may I say to you that I think one of the worst things that a child of God can do is deceive somebody. I think it'd be wrong for me as a believer to kind of have a message that I don't want to share with somebody and I try to make it look like I'm not really in, concerned about sharing that message, but in reality, my real goal is just to give them the truth, even though, in reality, even though I'm trying to present that I'm just like you. See, there's no difference. Look, we listen to the same kind of music. We listen to the same kind. Of, we dress the same way. We do this the same. We do that the same. And then all of a sudden kind of sneak the gospel in. Now, I get that we get our kids and we say, well, you know what? We're going to bring you to What? church. We're not lying to anybody. We're telling them, we want you to come to church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to have, uh, I don't care, pizza on the bus this weekend. Someone says, well, that's bribing them. Well, bribing has a negative connotation because bribing has a tendency to try to compel people to do evil. We're not bribing anybody because we don't want them to do evil. We want them to do good. So we're trying to motivate and move them here, just like D.L. Moody did whenever he was trying to get kids to come to his Sunday school and he gave a quarter out or nickel or whatever it was. I can't remember what the amount was. But there's no deception there. However, it seems sometimes is that if we're not careful, we're trying to present ourselves like the world in order to reach the world, and that's not effective. See, God intended that the church be a place for the saved. It's not our goal to try to make the church a place comfortable for the lost. See, the requirement to be a member includes being born again and baptized. The church is not simply a social club. It's not, it's not a lodge that you join. It's a living body that requires living parts and pieces. It means God's children. Amen. And not only that, second of all, God never instructed the church to appeal to sinners, but to reach out to them. See, the church is for the saved. It's not here for the lost. The church is for the saved. You get that? It's not for the lost. The church is for the saved, it's not for the lost. What we've done sometimes is that we've tried to accommodate the lost so much that we've made our churches like the world. And unfortunately, the church was never meant for the world. The church is meant for the believer. And it ought to be an escape from the world. And a place we can learn to have, to, a place we can draw strength to face the world. And although we ought to do our very best to make a lost guest feel accepted and loved as they arrive, we're not to employ measures during our services to make them feel comfortable leaving the same. We don't want them to leave the same. We want them to leave changed. See, there ought to be a sharp contrast noted by them in regards to our music compared to the music they're hearing here, compared to the music they listen to in their car and their home. There ought to be a difference there. And it ought to be a sharp contrast. There should be a powerful feeling of conviction. 
I mean a conviction that invades their soul from the Holy Ghost and the Word of God that's being preached. There ought to be that convicting power. There should be a sense of the awe of Christ and the need for, I guess, further evaluation and self-evaluation. They should leave feeling as though they attended. They shouldn't feel, should, excuse me, they shouldn't leave feeling like they attended just some concert or, or some program. No, they, they ought to be moved so deeply and they ought to be saying to themselves, what moved me such? Why, did I be, why was I moved like that? What was it about that service? What was it about that place that was so different than what I'm used to? And so when we knock on their door and we visit them afterwards, they ought to say, Man, I, I don't know, but when I was there, I, whew, I could, something was going on. And even if they're lost, they should feel the difference and know something happened. They met with someone, something, I mean, it just was different. See, we're not to be seeker-sensitive in our outreach, we're to be spirit-sensitive. We ought to be allowing the Holy Spirit to work and move. See, when it's all said and done, you and I will not be the agent of change. He is. So right off the bat, we see the command to shine. And as believers, it is our responsibility and our obligation to shine before a world that's in darkness. It's, it's really not a choice that we have either. It's a command. And so there ought to be a, a very visible difference in my life, in my attitude, that reflects the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two. Not only do we see the command to shine in verse 1, but notice in verse 2, right there off the bat, it says, we see the condition of man. The condition of man. The Bible goes on to say, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. If you... um, And, and again, I, I'm going to qualify this statements that I'm going to make here now. I tried to look them up the best I could. I want to make sure that they were accurate. Um, and I found some proof, um, not as much as I would necessarily like, but I, I do believe there's something to it because it was also found, I found it in a kid's book, Teaching Children. So I got to believe somebody wasn't lying to the kids, okay? Uh, even though I'd read it somewhere else, I found it in a secular, uh, a secular book, written to children. Okay, so I just want to qualify that. So if you think, you're off your rocker, preacher. I don't know where you're getting off saying that stuff. Uh, It was in a kid's book, okay? So anyway, I I, I want you to listen to this. If you put a buzzard in a pen that's six foot by eight feet and it's entirely open at the top, the bird, in spite of all its ability to fly, will be absolutely bound and will be a prisoner to that cage. The reason is that the buzzard always begins a flight from the ground with a run of 10 to 12 feet. So without space to run, as its habit is, it'll not leave, it'll, not even, it'll just eventually quit attempting to fly. It'll just stop trying. And it'll remain a prisoner for life in that small jail with no, no top on it. It's a bird. The bat. An ordinary bat that flies around at night, I mean, they're very nimble. They're remarkable, actually. Um, did you know that they, they can't take off? It, again, you may find, again, you may find an exception to this, but they can't take off from a level piece of ground. It, just flat ground. 
if it's placed on the floor or flat ground, it, it, all it can do is kind of shuffle about helplessly and, and I'm sure painfully until it reaches a slight elevation from which it can throw itself into the air. Once then, it just off and, off and going. So if it's on this flat piece and it moves around, moves around until it starts to fall and just like that, it's up and moving, flying again. Otherwise, it, you could set it down here. If it was flat on that floor right there, it's not going anywhere. The bumblebee. You know a bumblebee, if you drop it into an open tumbler, like a cup, no top, it'll be there till it dies. See, that's crazy. Well, it'll be there until it dies unless you take it out of there. It never sees the means of escape at the top. It keeps trying and trying and trying to some way find some way out from the sides or the bottom. The truth is it'll just keep buzzing around, bam, bam, banging its head in the side, banging its head in the bottom till it ceases to exist. You know what? That sounds crazy. Check it out. Maybe you'll read the same kid's book I did. That's crazy to me, all those examples. But you know what? In many ways, we're like the buzzard, the bat, and the bumblebee. When we struggle about with all our problems and our frustrations, we never realize that really when it's all said and done, all we really have to do is look up. I mean, the answer and the escape route, the solution to all of our problems is simply look up. That's what it really is. And man is lost and man is in darkness. And in our passage, we read that it's not been just something in our age. It's been throughout the age and history of mankind. And he will wander about in life searching for an escape, but never finding that escape. The whole time, he need only do what? Look up. Look up. Because there is the answer. He's there, Jesus Christ. The condition of man. What a sad condition it is. So sad indeed. Our passage points out that darkness shall cover the earth. And in Romans 8, 28, the Bible says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Man, we're in a mess. People say, well, why in the world are there earthquakes? And why are there tsunamis? And how come there's all of these natural disasters? Boy, the earth is groaning because of sin. It's in bad shape. But the problem is, not only is it the world itself, the the physical globe, but you and I today, we too are struggling. The Bible says, gross darkness shall cover the people. In Romans 8, 23, the passage goes on to say, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our body. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, In whom the God of this world, little g God, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Man, mankind is in a mess. They're in darkness. And we need to remember that. We can't forget that. And boy, I'll tell you what the Lord's trying to say to us. Rise and shine. Show this dark world that I'm truly living, that I'm alive and well today. Sometimes we lose 
motivation in the Christian life because we don't get out of the Christian life what we believe we ought to get. Everybody's expectations is somewhat different. And sadly enough, it shouldn't be that way. Our expectations should be exactly what God says they ought to be. But sometimes we get the idea that God owes us something or that because I'm a Christian it means this or it means that. And at times we can get somewhat discouraged. And if we get too discouraged, we can find ourselves distancing ourselves from God a little bit. Our mental, emotional status has a tendency to kind of wax and wane away from God. We start to turn to other elements in the world to provide us with the needs that we have in our life, to provide for our needs in our life. Instead of seeking God, instead of looking up, we start to look around us and we start to look down again and we lose sight of him. And the fact is, is that this isn't really about us to begin with. He's speaking to his people and he's saying, now listen, there's a bigger end game to this. It's not just about your happiness. It's not just about your family. It's not just about your present time in history. It's about the world and it's about eternity. And I want you to shine in the world. So we know the command to shine. We considered the condition of man. But now look at what it says in the passage in chapter 60, verse 2 again, and on into 3, it says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings the brightness of thy rising. Well, what a promise that is. The countenance of the converted. We see the countenance of the converted here. Like Israel in the millennium, who will shine because of the glory of the Lord reflected upon them, His glory also within us lights us up. And that light within us attracts the world. It attracts others to us. We work very diligently to try to dress up and look nice as as human beings. We, we, We take showers all the time and we try to use products that will keep us from smelling throughout the day. If uh, some people put makeup on and some people do this and that, everything's done. We want to be acceptable in the eyes of others. We want to attract people, not deflect people. But the problem with the believer today is if we lose sight of what's our real beauty. I, I, I was watching, some of you guys will appreciate this. I was watching Little Women the other day. I'm very secure in my masculinity. I was watching Little Women. Um, and I still remember when the dad had an accident or in the military and had been wounded and they wanted to send Marmy to see dad. They had no money to send Marmy to see her husband. And so nonetheless, they're looking and seeking a way by which they can get money and Joe comes back. Joe is a girl. And she steps into the the living area where everybody is and and uh, Marmy's like, you know, where you been, Joe? And, and there's, you know, we need money, blah, blah, blah. And she hands her money. And she's like, where did you get that money? Did you do this? No. She took off her hat. And she had cut her hair all off. And she said, I, 
basically sold my hair. And here's what I remember. Her little sister says, Oh, Joe, your only beauty. <laughs> your only beauty. Wow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Joe was only beautiful because of her long hair? And yet as believers, we fall into that trap, don't we? We somehow get the idea that if I just look pretty enough, then people will love me and accept me. That my real beauty is found in my exterior. I've got to lose that weight because I want to, not because it's healthier for you, not because it's something that you feel you need to do. You feel you've got to lose it or you'll lose the love of someone or the acceptance of someone. Because we bought into the idea that our real beauty is found in the physicalness, the outside, the exterior. But the believer's not beautiful because of this. The believer's beautiful because of him inside us. It's his light that must shine through. And obviously it is reflected through our attitude and our actions. I understand that. But unfortunately there are many believers that are trying to look beautiful on the outside that have not allowed him to have control of the inside. One of the great discoveries of any young man is when he finally realizes that a woman's beauty is not found just in how pretty her hair is or her eyes are or how soft her skin appears. But when he can look into her face and see Jesus, that is true beauty. And that is a great day in his life when he comes face to face with that reality. If he ever does because most people in the Christian life are not much more spiritual than the world so it's his glory within that lights up the person and and makes others attracted to us and Jesus Christ in his work of grace in our lives is the is the culprit of that so to speak In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know that his work of grace in our lives produces a spirit of joy? I hope you've recognized that in your own life. As God's spirit works and moves, as as he has his perfect work in our lives, we experience joy. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The psalmist said in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, to the chief musician, the psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Here it is now. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. It was that new song that made the difference. It wasn't the old song, it was the new song. See, we're no longer the same since we've received the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And whether or not you are aware of that reality yet in your life, I hope you are. 
I hope that you didn't allow that to be so diminished through the years or through the last months. Uh, you got saved, and boy, I mean, you were in a heightened sense of understanding that Christ was with you, and you had met the Master, and you were face-to-face with the light of the world at one point, and now you're just kind of meandering about aimlessly. I hope not. See, our joy odometer should be pegging daily. Uh, You're going to face difficulties. You're going to have some struggles in life. But our normal demeanor ought to be that of joy. See, our thoughts ought to always go back to the day that we've trusted him and received him. Our thoughts always ought to go back to that omnipotent, all-powerful Savior that we serve. May God help us to see light at the end of the tunnel always. Because when, if God be for us, who can be against us? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Not only that, but not only will his work of grace produce a spirit of joy, but his work of grace in our lives provides an attitude of servitude. Well, when you get a hold of this thing of grace and he's working in your life and he's making an impact in your life, there's a sense of gratitude and, and, and that sense of gratitude will inspire you to serve him. There is nothing more appealing in many cases than an attitude of gratitude. You find somebody that is ungrateful and unthankful, that's an ugly attitude. And it permeates and it affects and it, it disfigures the whole. But you get that attitude of gratitude, man, people's, it, it, they just light up. It's an amazing thing. A um, father and a mother who attended a small church faithfully had lost their son in battle a number of years earlier. One day they came to the pastor and they, they told him that they wanted to give a, a financial gift as a memorial to their son who had given his life in battle. Well, the pastor expressed his appreciation and he told them that what they were doing was, I mean, really a wonderful gesture. So he asked if he would be um, permitted to tell the congregation. And they consented. And so the next Sunday he stood before the congregation and he reminded the congregation or told the congregation of the gift that had been given in memory of their fallen son. On the way home from church that afternoon, another couple who attended the church were driving down the highway when the father said to the wife or the husband of the wife, why don't we give a gift because of our son? And his wife said, but our son didn't die in any battle. Our son's still alive. And the husband said, that's exactly my point. That's all the more reason we ought to give in, give thanks to God. Well, you know, it's an amazing thing. Sometimes we don't realize what we have till we lose it. You know, we're so grateful after the fact. Well, what about now? While it's still in our possession, while we're still enjoying the benefit of the blessing, so often we take it for granted, don't we? 
the little things especially. Not only that, but his work of grace in our lives promotes a lifestyle of victory. Well, when God's grace is working and we're allowing him to have preeminence in our life, I mean to tell you, it, it affects our lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that's affected in victory. See, the work of the Holy Spirit produces fruit that's priceless. We already noted the fruit of the Spirit. That priceless fruit is none other than love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I mean, those are, those are priceless. I, you, you know, do you know what would fix every marriage in America? It's simple. If every single person possessed that fruit right there. You wouldn't even have to love somebody in the way that we call love today. If you possessed this love. I want you to think for a minute, the answer. We said that the answer to every concern and every problem in our lives is to look up. And it really is. But how does that appropriate in our life? I tell you, it's appropriated through the work of grace in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, uh, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I want you to think with me. How many problems would you have with somebody that demonstrated those attributes consistently? How many problems would others have with you if you demonstrated those consistently? Now, let me ask you, how do you get those? How do you, how do you ultimately possess those attributes and qualities, the fruit of the Spirit. How do you take that fruit and how do you get it to where ultimately it's yours? How's that happen? How does it get from here, the pages of the Bible, into your life and heart? And I guess we could just simply say we have to possess the Holy Ghost, not just in the sense that we're indwelt by him, but that we are in fullness of him, that we're allowing him to have control. Do you want to know why marriages fail in churches and in the world? Because Christ isn't in control. Because either one or the other or both are still living and operating in the flesh. I'm telling you, the reason why there's dissent, there's, there's separation and division in the church across America and amongst even in local independent churches and even churches of all stripes and colors, I'll tell you why, because there's too much flesh, there's not spirit. It has nothing to do with, well, you just don't understand what he did. You don't know what she said. You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know what I've been going through. You don't know what that pastor said and did. You know what the problem is? Pastor, people, all of us, uh, we're missing that. So the next time you got a problem with someone, there's two questions to ask. One, why? And the second one would be this to me. Did I contribute to the problem or did I exhibit that? I mean, was I loving? Did I express joy? Did I seek peace? Did, did I exhibit long-suffering? Was I gentle? Did I, did I express goodness and faith? Was I meek? Was I temperate? Well, I tell you what, I, 
I think we'd solve all the problems between husbands and wives tonight if every husband and wife in the house of God would make it their job to be filled with the Spirit and exhibit the fruit. Because, see, that's what he's really talking about in the end for us, Christ being elevated and lifted up. See, one day Israel will shine as the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the throne of David. The eyes of the world will look upon them as they reflect his glory. And you and I tonight are privileged to experience the glory of God now. And we don't need to wait till the millennium. We can shine today. Not only can we, but we are commanded to. And we're to shine before people, people that are now in the midst of darkness. They need to see something unique. They need to see something different. They don't need the same old, same old. They don't need your advice that you got out of some people magazine or heard some television person talk about this or that or some radio personality give their opinion. What they need is the word of God. What they need is Jesus Christ. We got to help them look up, but they can't look up until we point them up and we got to be looking there already. They need to see something in us that says Jesus. They need to hear something in us that says Christ. Preacher was speaking in an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was to speak the next night. Billy Graham, he arrived early, and so he showed up at this particular meeting, and he came in rather incognito. He sat on the grass at the rear of the crowd, and because he was wearing a hat and dark glasses, no one even recognized him. Directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening intently to the presentation. When the preacher finally invited people to come forward at the uh, at, at a uh, um, invitation to make an open sign of commitment, Billy Graham decided to do a little personal evangelism, and so he, he walked up to the elderly gentleman who had appeared to be very focused on the message, who seemed to be taking it all in, and he tapped the man on the shoulder and he said, "Excuse me, sir, uh, would you like to accept Christ? I'll be glad to walk down with you." If you want to, the old man looked up and down and thought it over for a moment. And then he said this. He said, nah, I think I'll just wait till the big guns come tomorrow night. I'll just wait till the big guns come tomorrow night. Unfortunately, it kind of underlines how, in the minds of many people, evangelism, the work of God, things like that are to be done by the big guns, not the little shots. And even more disturbing, it's sad to note that sometimes even believers come to the conclusion that reaching the world and shining in the world in which we live, a dark world in which we live, ought to be done by the big shots. It's the pastor's responsibility. It's the leadership's responsibility. It's the paid staff's job. <laughs> no. No, there could be nothing further from the truth. Our passage says, arise, shine. That's to every believer. That's to each and every one of us. Rise and shine. Let them see Jesus in you. Shine before a world that's lost.
May God help us to rise and shine. Father, we come to you. We thank you again, Father, for just the simplicity of your word. And we just ask that you would just meet with us and continue to work in our lives. Lord, thank you for just the challenge to rise and shine from the word of God. We are aware that one day in in the future that Israel will be that light in the world that people will literally come, kings and dignitaries to that place, Jerusalem, because of the glory of the Lord that will be shining there. Lord, today, may we shine that we can draw all men unto thee. Father, there's a world that's in such great need tonight. Father, help each of our lives to reflect the Lord Jesus. May our attitude and our actions be such that they can't help but see you in us. May we not be so in our own flesh and selfishness that we think somehow that we have to doll up the outside. Although we ought to care for the outside, we ought to be presentable and we ought to look right and so forth. We can't somehow forget where our true beauty lies. And our beauty lies in your presence, in you living in us. We love you. We need you now. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand.